Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. Just want to say something before we, uh, before we do the uh, Word of God together. We're so proud of Paul Garcia, who you just saw giving our announcements there. Paul has been accepted as a chaplain in the Navy. Yeah. He, has, he has served faithfully here at Risen King. I, I believe that Paul was actually, when he kind of came out of high school, was a Marine. So he has the military background. And plus, serving the Risen King kids, he can go to war anywhere. <laughs> he can handle anything. So, uh, no, we're so, we're so proud of him. He will be commissioned an officer soon. And, and uh, though we will lose his wonderful gifts here at the church, we can just be his family and prayer support as he serves our country and serves those in the military faithfully. So, really thankful. Today we come to the conclusion of our Discern series, and one of the things I'd like to remind you of is this. Jesus constantly was taking people who had no sight and giving them sight. Why was that the most prevalent miracle that we see in the Gospels? Well, because it is a picture that every person is spiritually blind, And that they must go from spiritual blindness to spiritual sightedness. And Jesus' mission or what he was doing was he was revealing to those that that they were blind and that they needed sight. And he was revealing to the ones who thought they had sight that they were actually blind. And so what's being asked of you, what I've been asking of you for these last eight weeks, is that you would allow that there is a perspective on life that is beyond your natural abilities, that there is a perspective from Jesus through his spirit indwelling you so that you don't have to use your own limited sight, but you can see through the eyes of the spirit. Now, Jesus, in talking about spiritual discernment, defines success in life radically differently than the world does. And I want to give you, I want to give you a, a grid today for seeing, is my life successful, fulfilling, fruitful, in terms that Jesus himself lays forth? So one of the passages that I'd like for us to focus on today, it's one of those <laughs> very simple passages, but it tells whether you're discerning or not. It tells whether you're successful or not in terms of Jesus' perspective. So I like it when you read the scripture out loud with me. So let's read God's word together. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, Everyone who sees it will ridicule you. 
Isn't it interesting? Jesus defines success by describing failure. And here's what he says, that there are people who start well, but don't finish. And the reason they don't finish is because they don't count the cost of what it will take to finish what they started. So failure is a lack of wisdom. Because biblical wisdom is this. It's competence in regards to how life really works. If you are not counting the cost of what it takes to live the life you long to live or the life that is truly flourishing and thriving, if you've not counted the cost of that, then you are not wise and you will not finish well. So here we want to look at and unpack a little bit about what does the Bible have to say? What does Jesus have to say about your failure versus success? So again, I I just reiterate to you that spiritual discernment, the the ability to count the cost, is actually spiritual sightedness. It's seeing reality with more than just your own resources. If you are a believer, if you have Christ in your life, you have far greater resources than any other person because you have his sight. But he has to have access to your eyes. And to your heart. So what does that mean? It means you begin to learn that the most important thing about you is not being attentive to everybody else, but being attentive to God in all things. To be able to see, to be able to feel, to be able to move with the nudges, even the pushes of the Holy Spirit. And begin to realize that when, when you're moving in those nudges, when you're moving with God, you're accessing the omnipresence, you're accessing the omnipotence and the omniscience of God. See, I, I don't know about you, but I'm not all powerful. Lisa is, but I'm not. I'm definitely not everywhere present, can only be present in one place. I can only be present at this time, and I don't know all things. But the one who indwells me is everywhere present while he's relationally present with me. He is all-powerful, even though he he has chosen to be the divine resident within the walls of my life. All-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present, yet willing to live within the walls of my life. And yet, I keep telling him how I'm going to live my life. So again, Jesus is saying, here's the definition. Wisdom is confidence in regards to how the world really works. So this is what, this is what Jesus is saying. If you do something and you go, this is too hard, I can't do it, I can't finish it, then you haven't been wise. You've failed. This is what Jesus is saying when a relationship, you said, I committed to this person, but this is terrible, this is awful. He says, you didn't count the cost. You don't have competence in regard to how relationships really work. Boy, this parenting thing. 
I just really, man, I, I just don't know how I'm going to do this. And you're yelling and you're screaming at your kids. And Jesus says, look, you began this work. Now you've got to finish it. And finishing it means you have to have the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of your parents or your parents before them. And, and here's the thing. <laughs> Are you tracking with me a little bit on this? Okay, here's the thing. If you're honest, you realize we learn more from failure than we do success. When we're successful, we basically just say, I'm the greatest. You guys are just so blessed to have me. Uh, I'm a gift, you know, kind of a thing. And then when you, when you fail, it's like, oh, I'm terrible. I'm so awful. Instead of realizing the failure is telling you what you need to know to succeed. You learn more from failure. But here's, here's the problem. Most of us spend an awful lot of time and a lot of energy in regret. Do you understand what the emotion of regret is? Regret is when you go back and you experience failure, but you realize you can't change it. So you're stuck in the failure, and you're not able to actually move forward. And you keep saying things like, if, I, if I only that hadn't happened, if only that person hadn't done that, if only this event or this would have gone my way, then everything in my life would be different. You see, regret is an emotion that Satan uses to counterfeit repentance. Here's what the scripture says. Godly sorrow, so that's what God does. God, God wants you to go back and revisit the past, but it's godly sorrow leads to repentance. Repentance. And leaves no room for regret. That's what Paul says. Because regret gets you stuck. Oh, if I just hadn't married this person. Oh, if I just, we hadn't had kids when we didn't have any money. Or if we had just done this or we had just done that. You see how wasted those emotions because they're about things that cannot change. Which then make you question your ability to succeed and it makes you question God's faithfulness to you. So the enemy is accusing you and God in the same breath with regret. But what does God do? God goes after godly sorrow. In other words, he wants you to lament things that haven't gone the right way. He doesn't want you to say, hey, it's okay. God's good all the time, all the time. God's good. I don't have to feel in nothing. Both in Hebrew and Greek, there's words that mean it sucks. <laughs> and sometimes it sucks to be you. <laughs> See, if we will not embrace that, we'll not learn from failure. We'll be stuck in regret. What does it mean godly sorrow leads to repentance? Here's what it means. It doesn't mean you get a do-over. Because you see, if you don't change the way you see things, you'll just make the same mistakes. The issue is not, can I get another chance? The issue is, what lie was I believing when I made those choices? What false assumptions did I have when I made that choice, that decision? What did I believe or expect that wasn't true? 
You see, if I don't change the lie to the truth, then the results will still be the same. It will still be failure. Now, I'm not the only one that teaches this. It's interesting. I actually learned this from Harvard Business School. They have an MBA program where they teach leadership development by failure. And what they make all these hotshot business people do who are trying to get their MBA from Harvard is they make them do a case study on their worst failure. They have to present it to other prideful, arrogant Harvard students, which breaks them all down because it's the most competitive environment in education. But what they tell is not their success. They have to tell their failure. And every person in there is trained to say, here's the lie you believed. Here's the false assumption that you brought. You understand, all they're doing is what Jesus said. They're saying, you know, look, Harvard's just catching on to Jesus. <laughs> what did he say? If you don't finish what you started, you'll be subject to ridicule. They're just making it a reality at Harvard. The question isn't, can I get another chance? The question is this, will I, will I be willing to have the lie exposed that brought about my failure? Am I willing to have the expectations about reality exposed that are actually false? You understand, every promise of God is yes and amen, but he's not bound to your expectations. He's not bound to or committed to your assumptions. And Jesus says, you got to count the cost even of your assumptions. Life should be this way. Life should be that way. But if you'll do that, what the Bible says is the reward for these wise boundaries, even those boundaries hard fought, won through failure, the, the reward is that the joy of your desires are fulfilled. Here's a beautiful promise. Some of you know it well. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, that means that you're so delighted in the Lord that you've brought your desires under his covenant love, and now what delights him delights you. And anything in you that no longer delights him is a lie that needs to be exposed, and therefore sorrow comes and repentance comes, but it leaves no regret. Now, it's great that they're learning to do this at Harvard, but they don't have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. Harvard will come and go, but the Holy Spirit is forever. But I, I feel somewhat competitive that we should at least do it as well as Harvard does it. <laughs> Are you tracking with me in this? So the idea is if you're going to invest, because you're investing emotion, energy, you're investing your whole life into things, so your investments in the years that come from today, they need to pay off. You understand? You may not have understood anything like this till today, but from today on, you understand it. And to, from today on, your investments can have a marvelous return. These two, there are two verses that I've given you that characterize all of spiritual discernment. The one is this, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything else is of the evil one, Jesus said. And then Jesus said, if you start something, count the cost or don't start it. 
And if you start it and you don't finish it, you failed. Now, you can learn from that failure or you can regret that failure. But here's what Paul said, because Paul counted the cost of what it would be like to follow Jesus. And here's what he said. The time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, here's the deal with this. It's really important, that keeping the faith. In other words, what's it going to cost for you to keep the faith so you can finish the race? Well, a cost that your faith must be in something that's true. Your faith must have a faithful object. Now, notice something. When Ashley said to each of you, wave at your neighbor and sit down, you all did it like obedient church people. But I didn't notice any of you testing the chairs. But you had faith in the chairs. So you sat in the chair without thinking about it. See, when the object is faithful and the object is trustworthy, when the object is something you've relied on before, you don't have to think about it. You go right to the chair. I used to keep a chair in my office. And it was, it was falling apart. Because I had a lot of people who come and say, well, if I just have enough faith, Pastor, then I can be free from sickness. If I just have enough faith, Pastor, then I can... See, what they were doing is they were making their faith the cause instead of the means. So their faith had to be big, no matter how big their God was. And so I said, okay, sit in that chair and say to the chair, if I just have enough faith... And I said, uh, I said, sit down. And they said, Pastor, are you crazy? If I sit in that chair, it will not sustain my weight. I said, then have enough faith. They're like, no matter how much faith I have, Pastor, that chair will not sustain. I said, then give it a special prayer. <laughs> oh, holy chair. Be faithful in your chairnessness. They're like, you're crazy. I said, so is your faith. They only came once. <laughs> nah, they came back. I'm sorry. I just went for the joke. What am I saying? You see, faith creates nothing. If your faith is in something that's faithless, you're going to fall. But if your faith is in something that is faithful, then it's like sitting in that chair. But this is the problem with many of us. You see, we're, we're trying to create faith that will create then life instead of embracing life by means of faith. What does that mean? Well, it means that you're going to hit bumps in the road. No matter how mature you get, the Apostle Paul is a great example of this, no matter how mature you get, you're going to find that people challenge your boundaries. You may find and decide, I've got a visual image of my personhood, who I am as a person, what I can do, what I can't do. You might find, I know where I end, I know where I begin, I know where I need to say yes or I say, need to say no, but I'll tell you what, nobody else knows. 
And no matter how mature you get, they're going to cross over and trespass. And so one of the things is that if you're going to be in this life, you're going to have trials. And Jesus said, count the cost. Because you see, what the trials will reveal is what your faith is really in. If you end up saying, God, I only will believe in you if, I'll only believe in you when, I'll believe in you as long as, and you have conditions other than the character of God and the truthfulness and faithfulness of his word, if you're still wrestling with that, then the trials and the complications of life will knock you right off a faith path. And let me tell you, all you have to do is be around people. The complications is just being around others. <laughs> you know, you think you have people figured out and then they throw you a curve. You think you have a rhythm going in your life and then all kinds of stuff comes in and really knocks you right off your routine. Things called pandemics, racial injustice, violence against friends and family and brothers and sisters and all of this kind of stuff. And you're like, I don't feel safe anywhere. But that's part of counting the cost. Because you've got to finish like the Apostle Paul. If you want to finish like the Apostle Paul, you don't just start well. You do well in the middle. These are evil days. The Bible says these are last days. You know, what's, I, I hope you're going to understand what I'm about to say. One of our big problems is that we are not taking into consideration that every single thing that's happening in your life is under grace. One old theologian, you may not like what he has to say, but I think he's right in this. He says anything short, anything less than you being crucified on a cross and dying for your own sins is grace. Come on, you got to hear me on this. Anything less than, anything going on in your life, sickness, injustice, anything less than you having to die on the cross for your own sins means that you're under grace and you're under the favor of God. But we don't live like that. We live as demanding, obligated people without gratitude. I blame HGTV. I mean, if you watch for a while, you'll go, this is the kitchen you deserve. <laughs> How did we ever live without touchless faucets? Man, there are walls in my house. I am oppressed because I don't have open concept. <laughs> and if you listen to their prophets, the Property Brothers, Joanna Gaines, you deserve, they say. You understand what's happened to us is we've fallen for a line. These aren't the last days. These are the best days. Or we fall for a line and says, these aren't the best days. Those days past were the good old days. I'm not sure a single African-American would agree that the 50s were the good old days. <laughs> that was a quick. Right? So these are last days. These are evil days. Now, it doesn't mean that it's evil to have a nice kitchen. But it's evil to demand that you can't live without a nice kitchen. 
or to see your nice kitchen as something you deserve instead of something you have gratitude to the grace of God for. So that if it's taken away, it's not your treasure. See, when God is ultimate to you, he can give you kitchens. He, he can design open concepts for you. He did the sky. <laughs> but when your house is ultimate or your family is ultimate or anything is ultimate, then if it gets taken away, you see what your real God is. So there's going to be all kind of resistance to you setting boundaries and to the goals that you have in life. But what I've been trying to do with this discern series is get you to understand there is a growth towards maturity and it has to do with limits. It has to do with knowing where you end, where you begin. And when you understand that, you start to make room for reality instead of fantasy. And you begin to say, hey, I love this quote. It says, and you know that should it be needed, a no is waiting inside your heart, ready to use. Not for an attack, not to punish another, but to protect and develop the time, talents, and treasures that God has allocated to you. Would you take just a minute, take your finger, and just draw a circle around yourself. Just draw a border. You understand, inside that border, it's your time. You get to say yes or no. It's your investment. You need to look from the end to now. At the end, what do you want to say? Do you want to say with Paul, I fought the good fight? I finished the race? I kept the faith? Well, that all depends on what you say yes to and what you say no to. And nobody, nobody can make you say yes. You're saying yes. Now, I'm not saying they don't influence you, but I'm saying in the end, the one accountable for this circle before God is you. And the trespassers will be accountable for their own trespassing. But in terms of what you said yes to and what you said no to, and what are you saying yes? The use of your time, the use of your talents, the use of any of your resources whatsoever. And how you invest that is what God will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You understand that takes spiritual sightedness. You can't just do what your family wants you to do. They're as lost as you are. You can't do what your culture wants you to do because they're just as lost as you are. What you must do is say, all of these things matter to me, my family, my culture, my ethnicity. All these things are of God. All these things have God, Godness in them. But I answer to God alone. Because if you're just people-pleasing, you're no longer a servant of God. But at the same time, I find being a servant of God makes it to where I serve all kinds of people. But I don't do it in a way without limits and without boundaries. Now, hey, can you advance it for me, Stephen? I don't know what happens. It falls asleep on me. I know I talk too much, but hey, come on, computer. So what am, I, what am I getting at? This, this, this might be the most important part. Okay, so what, what, what is happening here is you begin to realize God is not interesting in resourcing your willpower. 
He wants a willing surrender. So here's one writer that helped me. He says, are we open to the Lord, to the depths of our very being? Is there first and foremost an abandonment of ourselves, our whole selves, to the love and the goodness of God? It always amazes me on Sunday mornings. Gabe and I never coordinate what he's going to lead us in worship. And yet he always preaches my sermon in the songs. Oh, the reckless love of God. It chases me down, fights until I'm found, leaves the 99, breaks every wall down, climbs every mountain to get me. So why is it I keep him at arm's length? Why is it that I say to him, Lord, I'll commit this to you, but this is mine. Lord, you can have, you know, you can have this part of my time, but the rest is mine. I'll do it my way. See, what he's, what he's, what he's saying is I've been chasing you with my reckless love. God is the only one who can keep hearing no from you and will not stop until you say yes. Now, my belief is that some of you are here, you're still seeking, you're still trying to decide this Christian thing. You're trying to decide if you really are all in for Jesus or not. And I'll tell you, you can stay here with us as long as you want. You can belong with us even before you believe. But at some point, I have to let you know, it's an all or nothing thing. It's either you surrender to his love fully, passionately, almost like breaking everything else in your life, crushing every other idol. Only he is ultimate. Only he is your treasure. Or he won't stop till that's what happens in your heart. Because even if the mountains and the walls are in you, he's breaking them down to get to you. At some point, it becomes really all or nothing. And so what we're looking at here is that, you know, apart from this kind of openness that says, I'm going to abandon myself to you, I'm going to open myself up fully to you. Without that, we're not truly seeking God, even though we may be seeking something from God. If, on the other hand, we are open to God and seeking to be attentive to his divine presence, we will know that presence. For as we are seeking and attentive to God, we can be sure that God is seeking and attentive to us. You are never seeking him that he didn't seek you first. You're never turning into his love without his love having chased you down to find you. He's attentive. He's seeking you. Ah, Our choice then is to surrender to the kingdom of God, but it cannot arise out of the kingdom of self. Here's what I mean by that. See, religion is a moral activity of the kingdom of self. I'm trying to make myself acceptable to God and to others. I'm trying to get approval for my morality. I'm trying to look like I am a moral good person. Because I want all of you to think that I'm a moral good person. And I hope God will think that I'm a moral good person. And so religious people tend to compare themselves to one another. At least I'm not as sinful as that person. So if we're really a screwed up religious group, you're looking around the room and said, at least I'm not as terrible as they are. 
And the idea is, well, if, if God can let them in, he'll let me in. And so then it becomes all about how do I appear rather than who am I really. And you see, God is not fooled. He's not mocked by appearances. He's not really interested in propping up your kingdom of self. So when you come to God for something without coming to God to be your everything, God is actually opposed to you and opposed to your idolatry and will touch that idolatry so that you will become desperate for real love and for truth. And so you might be mad at God right now or you might be upset with God. He's trying to get you out of kingdom of self and see this won't work. I have never seen someone really turn their life over to God till they realize everything they do and everything they could do doesn't work. I've never seen someone really become filled with the Spirit or really dependent on the Spirit till they realize I can't depend on myself. And you see, if any of you have God as your assistant, he didn't take the job. Because he has everywhere he goes, he is God, not somebody's assistant. Are you tracking with me in this? So that means this. Anything we do within the kingdom of self will always be done by willpower. And Jesus' teaching is that that's never enough to enter or live within the kingdom of God. See, kingdom of self says, God, you're obligated to empower my will to keep me from doing guilty or shameful things. So there are a lot of people who want to appear good or appear righteous or religious in some way. So they say to God, God, I need the power to overcome pornography. And then they're angry because they still are attracted to and attached to pornography. There are people who wrestle with sexual orientation. And so they feel like the Bible is pretty clear that, that it is... It is one man, one woman in a covenantal relationship of marriage in which God ordains sex to happen. But they have attractions, same sex, or outside of their marriage attractions. And they say, oh, God, take these attractions away. But what they're praying is, Lord, clean up my kingdom of self. Make it to where this isn't a struggle for me. Make it to where this is easy for me because I have no desires in this. And God says, I'm not going to support your kingdom of self. And so many will say, well, God didn't give me help with pornography, so it must be okay I do pornography. Some say, well, God didn't take away my same-sex attraction, so it must be of God. Instead of saying God's word is really clear on this. So what they've thought is that God is supposed to empower my willpower. But God doesn't do that. What he's asking in the scripture, what spiritual sightedness it says is this. We begin to allow God's action in us, not just him giving willpower so that we can, in our own strength, have control or have more control. And so what we're doing is we're saying, I can't save myself from these feelings and from these tendencies and from these even attachments that I have in life, I have to give God consent, not my discipline. See, many of us, what we want is God to give us willpower so then we can be disciplined and we can offer our disciplined life to God. doesn't work that way. 
What we must do is say, God, you're asking for the consent to be my healer. You're asking for the consent to be my sanctifier. So that means, again, Gabe was singing that song, and Ruthie, with great anointing, was singing that song. It says, all I did was praise you. All I did was worship you. All I did was stay still while you healed me, while you found me, while you changed me. You understand? What most of us are doing is, I'm not staying still, God. you got to help me as I run as fast as I can. God, I'm not going to stay still and worship you and believe you. I'm going to do it myself. And if you're going to come with me, good. If you're not, fine. But I'm going to overcome. Let me tell you, that isn't overcoming. That's just falling into a whole new area of bondage. Here's the thing. If faith creates nothing, then faith creates no glory. God isn't going to go, oh, you are glorious in your faith. But God wants to be glorious through your faith. So that when you stay still and say, God, I've got these addictions. God, I have these attachments. God, I have these broken places. God, I have this shame. And I consent you to be my healer. I'm going to I'm going to participate, not resist. I've seen it so often, the opposite happened. What happens is people start feeling guilt. So then they they say, I'm going to resolve. You see, resolution is not surrender. I've had people come to the altar and they come with such determination in their heart. They feel guilty. They feel ashamed and they say, I'm going to do better. And here's, here's some of the ways I've seen it. This time, pastor, I'm going to do this once and for all. This time, I really mean business. This time, I'm finally ready to surrender. But you see, the surrender is fueled by willpower. It's no more genuine than surrender that's fueled by guilt. I've seen people who tried to repent because they got caught. They didn't repent because they still were of the same mind. They just didn't want to get caught. Are you tracking with me on this a little bit? So if all you're doing is willing in a willful manner, that is relying on willpower, it's still a willful life. It's not, a, it's, not, it's not kingdom of God. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of self are like oil and water. They just don't mix. So here's the deal. You're either living kingdom of self and saying, God, empower my kingdom of self, or you're fully willingly surrendered and you're living in the kingdom of God. Let's, get, let's make this a little more practical in a way, or give you a, let me give you a test in a way. So in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Paul says, God only wants willing followers, willing decisions. So look at what it says. There was a famine in Jerusalem, and, and the Corinthians were being asked to give money for their brothers and sisters. And Paul says this, each one of you must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. See, Paul says, I don't want your money if it's coming from a wrong heart. (laughs) A lot of pastors don't say that. What is he saying? He's saying, okay, he's saying how you give is as important, maybe even more important than what you give. So let's make this, let's make a test, okay? So you, talking about you, are asked for something 
and you're not sure you have anything left to give. You aren't sure if you can do it cheerfully. So which of these two things characterizes the way you make the decision? So since you're unsure if you have it left to give, there's nothing left in your tank, but somebody's asking you of something. So you're unsure, so you say yes. Would that be you? Or you're unsure, so you say no. Now, if you always say no, you already failed this test. If you can't say yes, you're already spiritually blind. Because you have to let your yes be yes and your no be no. So if you can never say yes, then your no is already, it's already a lost cause. But if you're a person who wrestles and you're like, I want to serve people, but sometimes I've got nothing left in the tank. Well, see, for me, my default setting is the first one. I'm unsure, but I tend to say yes because I don't want to lose the relationship. I don't want to disappoint people. And so what happens is I give to them out of an empty tank, which means what I'm giving to them is empty. So the more mature response of the two of these is the second. Why is that? Because if we're really going to be biblically sighted people, Paul says it's more responsible to give out of our resources than to promise that which might not be able to deliver. Jesus said that we are to calculate the cost of our endeavors. So I am a boundary injured individual. I think many of you are as well. And what happens with boundary injured individuals is we make promises. We promise when we have nothing to give, we make promises. And how we respond as we give is one of two ways. We resentfully will do what we said. So I am a master of this, of doing what I promise, but making sure you know how much I resent having to do this. I can't believe you asked this of me. Do you know how busy I am? Do you know how tired I am? And my wife's over there going, shut up, Mike. It is an awful thing when you don't have proper personal boundaries because you will give, but you will make them pay for what you're giving. Or you just say, I'm not going to do it. I'm too busy. I'm too tired. I know I promise, but they'll have to understand. Do you understand either of those is not success? Either of these says, not only do you not have wisdom, but you don't understand how life really works. And Jesus is trying to get you to the place where you have wisdom in regards to how life really works. And he has said very clearly, if your yes is not yes and your no is not no, then anything else you say comes from the evil one. How you start is important, but how you finish is more important. So healthy people, they make good freely and they make good gladly or they don't promise at all. Can I, I know I've gone over, he's still with me a little bit. I wanna, I wanna do one more quote for you. One more quote. I had a lot more, you can tell. I'm really, it was really good stuff too. I'm sorry you won't get to hear it. Maybe I'll bring it back. So this quote really, really helped me. And I think it'll help you if you let it. Although it took some time to learn, I now trust in the power of a simple no. And now, once I've made the decision not to say yes to something, 
I decline the offer graciously. And I don't try to justify my answer. When I used to explain my no, it simply empowered the recipient to negotiate with me. So take authority of your no with love and confidence and render it with compassion and respect. Also, I realize now when I say no to one thing, I'm saying yes to something else. When I take on task out of compulsion or because I think it's what I ought to be doing, I may be missing God's opportunity to make a unique contribution to his kingdom. And I may be robbing someone else of the chance to serve him. Saying no to the kingdom of self, but saying yes to the kingdom of God. Gus, can you stand to your feet? I thought maybe the second time hearing it for the second service would hurt way less. It, nah, you with me? I know you were here. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think about this whole sightedness concept, and I think of um, the blind man. When Jesus healed the blind man, he would see things for the first time when he was healed. He would see colors. He would see people. But that also means he would see brokenness. He would see some dark things too. And um, I don't want you to think that uh, we're just bashing you over your head with with something. This is hard work. This isn't easy work. So ironic to do something as easy as let go can be so tough to do. And so I want to read some scripture over you. It's coming from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38 and 39. Um, And it says this. It says, so don't throw it all away now. You were sure of yourselves then, and it's still a sure thing. But you need to stick it out, staying with God's plan so you'll be there for the promised completion. It won't be long now. He's on the way. He'll show up most any minute. But anyone who is right with me thrives on loyal trust. If he cuts and he runs, I won't be very happy. But we're not quitters who lose out. Oh no. We'll stay with it. We'll survive trusting all the way. That is God's promise to us. We are not quitters. We are citizens of heaven. Amen. I want to pray over us you bow your heads lord we declare that we are not quitters we are citizens of heaven for us to let go of the control does not make us a quitter it makes us all of what you made us to be a son a daughter that can trust in their father trust and have faith that he will do what he said that he will do the kingdom of self it pales in comparison to the kingdom of the Lord. Why would we cheat ourselves out of the full life you paid for with the death of your son? Lord, may today be the day we make our stand. Today be the day where we say, God, I'm done. I'm not doing this. 
I'm not going to do this on my own. I need you. Lord, it can seem like such complicated work, but it starts with just one word, and it's yes. Yes to your ways. Yes to what you want to do in our lives. Yes to you being the king over every area of our hearts, not just partially or in a compartmentalized way. No, Lord, we give you everything. May you open our eyes. May the mud touch our eyes and give us sight, sight that can only come from you, Lord. We cannot wait to see what you will show us. So I ask that you would come and have your way. I seal the work you are starting, you are doing in this room, wherever anyone is tuned in, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the church said, Amen.